This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 250, Through Hiking Pacific Crest Trail in the Wintertime with Sean Forey. Hi friends, Kurt here. Thank you so much for listening to today's show with the Adventure Sports Podcast. We really are glad that you're here. Before we dive into the main part of the show, though, I want to remind you about our all-new member site. I'm really excited about it. What we have done is provided you with the opportunity to help support the Adventure Sports Podcast, to keep the show going strong and all of these wonderful guests coming to you and this great content for years to come, and to say thank you for becoming members and for your support We have worked with the various vendors that we have met through the show, and they are providing deep discounts to you for being members of the Adventure Sports Podcast community. And so if you go to members.adventuresportspodcast.com, you can see what the discounts are there. You can also go to our main site, adventuresportspodcast.com, and in the upper right, there's a link that will take you to the member site. Look around, see what kind of deals we have to offer. And we thank you in advance for your support. But I just want to make a point. If you take advantage of even one of these deals, generally the discount will cover more than an annual membership. So want to make sure that we are able to say thank you and give back to you for supporting us. So here's one that I would thought I would highlight today. That's Paragus Northwoods. This is an outfitter in Ellie, Minnesota that does outfitting for the Boundary Waters Wilderness Trips. And everything from a simple canoe riddle to a full outfitting service. Paragus Northwoods is offering 20% off, which is a huge savings. And I've been working with Steve Paragus over the years, visited with him. He was on the show a couple of times telling us about Boundary Waters and what's going on up there. Really, really great guy. They use only the best in canoeing materials they have the high-end canoes that are super ultra-lightweight, super ultra-lightweight paddles. They only use the best because they want you to have the best possible experience when you work with them to go see one of our nation's favorite wilderness areas, the Boundary Waters. So that's just one example out of many of different vendors that are supporting us by giving you discounts And we thank you in advance for becoming Adventure Sports Podcast members. Really helps a lot. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Wow, I've got a guy that you are all going to want to hear a lot about, and we can't begin to cover all of his adventures in one show. So we're going to narrow it down to one adventure. But Sean Forey is on the line, and Sean grew up in Pennsylvania, and then he started working with Outward Bound, and from there that led to an adventure-focused lifestyle, and he has done major through-hikes all over the United States. So he holds the Triple Crown, but not only the Triple Crown, he's found innovative ways to do things and to do other long trails and innovative trails and projects. And I'm really excited to visit with Sean to uh, pick his brain a little bit about this amazing backpacking lifestyle and adventure-focused lifestyle. So, Sean, thanks for being on the program. Yeah, thanks, Kurt, for having me. So, Sean, 
Um, I want to start by mentioning Justin Lichter, and the reason is that the main thing we're going to talk about today was that you and Justin did the Pacific Crest Trail in the wintertime in 2014-15, and uh, that's quite the feat. That's amazing. And I, I want to say hats off to Justin and to you for pulling that off. Justin was not able to join us tonight, regretfully. Maybe we can get him on a future show, which would be awesome. But I'm glad that you could be here to share the tale with us. Yeah, no worries. So I want to just kind of dive into your website for just a minute so people kind of get a feel for uh, who you are and the kinds of things that, that you've been up to over the last several years. And uh, this is going to get a little bit long, but I think it's worthwhile. 2003, Appalachian Trail. 2004, Pacific Crest Trail. 2005, Wainwright's Way, which is 185 mile coast to coast from St. Bees to Robin Hood Bay in England. 2005, GR20. That was 110 miles from Clenzana to Conca, Corsica. 2005, El Camino de Santiago. 650 miles from the Pyrenees to the Atlantic, France and Spain. 2006, Continental Divide Trail. 2007, to Aurora. Did I say that right? Uh, close. Te Aurora. I don't know if I'll ever say that right. Yeah. It was 850 miles from Bluff to Ship Cove, South Island, New Zealand. So that's awesome. And then 2008. Man, I think we're seeing a pattern here. Hayduke Trail, 850-mile canyon country from Arches um, to Zion National Parks and Utah and Arizona. 2008, the Long Trail, 280-mile, America's first long-distance trail from Canada to Massachusetts border. 2009, Sierra High Route, 250-mile cross-country from Mount Whitney to Twin Lakes, California. 2010, man, we're catching up with you. Great Divide Trail, Pacific Northwest Trail, connecting the Canadian Rockies to Washington's rugged coast. 2011, the Great Himalaya Trail in Nepal. 2012, Tahoe Rim Trail, 165-mile circumnavigating North America's largest alpine lake. 2012, Colorado Trail unsupported speed record. We need to have a show about that, too. You did 485 miles from Denver, Colorado to Durango, Colorado, through the Colorado Rockies, and it's got to say how long that took. Uh, like ten and a half, just over ten and a half days. Ten and a half days. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So in ten and a half days, that means you're, you're averaging about 45 to 50 miles a day. Yeah, I think it was about 45 miles per day. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. 2013, High Sierra Ski Traverse, 150-mile Sonora Pass to Mammoth Lakes. Uh, 1415, and this is the one we're going to spend time on today, the Pacific Crest Trail Winter Traverse, 2,660 miles, linking Canada to Mexico through the Cascades and the Sierra. And uh, this is the one that you did with Justin, which is amazing. Winter time on the PCT. 2015, Wind River Range High Route, 180 miles uh, through the spine of the Wind River Range. That's Wyoming. 2015 Teton Crest Route, 65-mile jaunt into the heart of the Tetons. Uh, you also did a low-to-high route in 2015. 
That was a 135-mile connecting the lowest and highest point in the lower 48. So I'm assuming this is Death Valley to Mount Whitney. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Wow. So I, I guess now everyone's jaws dropped, and they're thinking, whoa, how does this guy find the time to do this much through hiking and backpacking? And uh, it kind of makes you sound like an animal, man, I have to say. <laughs> or maybe I'm just an addict. I, I don't know. It's hard <laughs> to distinguish the two. Well, tell uh, us just a little bit about that. How do you find the time? How did you create a lifestyle that allowed for all this? It's great. Well, I think for me, just the the trip in the summer became the, the priority. That's sort of what I built my calendar and built my life around. Um, and hiking is surprisingly like very uh, cheap thing to do. Um, you're literally just walking and feeding yourself. Um, so I would usually work two or three jobs in the winter and just save up. And I think just living a really frugal lifestyle, uh, it's amazing how much you can save and just put towards another adventure. Um, so once you sort of figure out that your, your yearly routine of piecing together work and then putting all that energy into a trip, uh, it just becomes sort of the day of the, almost like a yearly migration. Well, I think that's really neat, and um, you know, a lot of people they they get a couple of weeks off a year, and that's pretty much all they're going to have. You've been planning the summer trip. Uh, did your work with Outward Bound allow you that flexibility? Is that how that worked out? Yeah, fortunately for me, um, Outward Bound provides year-round work if you want it, um, so I can sort of piece together um, if I wanted to work a couple courses in the summertime or in the fall or in the winter. Um, you know, depending on which trip, what time of year the trip I wanted to do needed to take place, uh, I could sort of build my work schedule around around that. So it was a great way um, to have meaningful work that also sort of built my own skill sets and um, kept me in shape for the next trip uh, and kept me outside. Well, hey, since we mentioned Outward Bound, I want to ask you, a lot of people have heard of Outward Bound. I don't think a lot of people really know what Outward Bound is. So... You're a director with Outward Bound now, right? Uh, yeah, I'm the program director for the High Sierra program here in California. That's great. So and, you're the perfect guy to ask. Give <laughs> us the bullet points. What <laughs> oh, is well, Outward Bound really? Uh, we're, well, we don't work. We're not a for troubled kids, although we do have programs for that. Um, that's the most common mis- misconception. Um, but the way I like to think of it is we are a program that provides character development. So um, these sort of abstract skills, life skills, whether it's like leadership, communication, decision-making, things you don't tend to learn in an academic setting. An Outward Bound course is structured to send you on an expedition where these things will inherently come out um, over the course of a couple days to a couple weeks, depending how long the course is. So um, students on our courses are presented a series of challenges, and they're, they're not contrived challenges. You're out there learning a new skill, whether it's backpacking or climbing or skiing or dog sledding. Um, and there's just natural consequences of learning from your mistakes out there. Oh, yeah. So what's the age range of the students that you guys work with? Um, we work with students all the way down to 12 and as old as 65 plus, including uh, veterans of foreign wars. Oh, that's great. So you've been with Outward Bound now for 10 or 11 years. That's a pretty long run. Um, if people are interested in that kind of work, how do they get into that? 
I think having uh, a well-rounded outdoor um, experience is really helpful. And also just, I think having a passion to work with people, I think it, we're very different than guiding. Uh, a lot of people that want to come into the work to be outside to guide people, it's, it's a slightly different approach. And uh, we're here to sort of shape students' lives and be a part of that process. So you get to be outside while you're with people is the way I like to think of it. Mm. Is Outward Bound affiliated with uh, like any religious organizations or anything like that? Uh, we're not, no. We're just a, a nonprofit. So as a nonprofit, do you guys uh, drum up business, take donations and that sort of thing, or is the program supported from the student fees? Uh, it's, we have a really interesting business model where it's both. Um, some of our tuition or revenue comes from tuition-based from courses, and um, a lot comes from scholar um, donations. So about half of our students that go on course receive some sort of scholarship or tuition reduction. Neat. Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time on Outward Bound because I want to talk about this PCT thing. But if someone was interested in learning a skill, being challenged like you were describing, um, how can they get plugged in with Outward Bound to go on a trip? Um, Just going to our our website, OutwardBound.org. There's a whole menu of exciting adventures out there to check out. So I've mentioned on the show in the past that I've had the wonderful opportunity to to take a lot of inner city kids into the woods um, to to experience nature and, and to backpack and that sort of thing. And we, we used to teach some rappelling and, and various things like that. I'm just amazed at the impact that nature can have on someone when maybe they didn't grow up in nature. It's kind of new to them. It can be a life-changing experience, and you get to see that, wow, all the time. Yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like nature's the great equalizer, and it, there's infinite lessons that it, it teaches you while you're out there. It's it's impressive, and I think what keeps me going out there and pursuing those life lessons. Yeah, really, really cool. Well, hey, we talked about. I mean, I, I listed all these trips, and it, it doesn't sound like you're slowing down at all. But I'm particularly interested, like I said, in this wintertime Pacific crest trail trip and so you guys are the first ones to successfully pull this off is that right uh that's that's correct there uh, from our research there was a couple um that tried in the 80s that um unfortunately uh was a a fatal attempt um they got 100 miles in and um uh, i think that slipped and fell somewhere in southern california unfortunately that's t- that's tough. So there's so many questions I have about this. Um, I don't. I hardly know where to start. But let's just start with the 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 skeleton, and then we'll hang some meat on it later, right? So you guys decided to, to do this in the winter time. So when did you start, and when did you finish? Uh, we started in late October, so October 21st, and finished on March 1st. And just the the concept of like winter and when did we want to start and finish. Um, that was a long discussion between us uh, to begin with. Um, just like, how do you do, define a winter trip? I mean, winter as a season is only three months long. And we felt like that wasn't, you know, practical to cover that distance in only three months. Um, so the way we rationalized the concept of a winter trip and why we chose those dates were we wanted to start um, after all the normal summer hikers are finished. 
and we want it to finish before all the normal summer hikers start. There you go. So to be truly off season on the PCT. Right. And that meant that you really were there, not only for winter, but for a, a big chunk of fall and uh, almost made it to spring. So you finished before spring actually hit there. Yeah, we were planning on probably finishing in early April and um, we're able to finish a little bit on the early side. Well, a guy that averages 45 miles on the Colorado Trail every day probably can cover some ground. So when you're talking about a 45-mile-a-day average, and we'll come back to the PCT, but were you doing it as an ultra runner or were you truly just hiking a really long time? Yeah, I think when it comes to distance hiking and distance speed hiking in particular, there's just like really interesting uh, threshold where running, in my mind, becomes less efficient and walking is um, sort of the more superior. Uh, so I was walking um, the entire time, probably averaging a three and a half mile pace, mile per hour pace. And it's just putting in the time. So putting in 18 plus hour days and not stopping. Wow. So you're talking about doing about a, a 16 to 18 minute mile or something like that. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of ultra runners aren't going much faster than that. If any faster, it's just a different cadence. It's a, it's a different style of movement. And so that's really kind of, that's a brisk pace. It's almost speed walking. It, it is. And I think the, the nature of just being unsupported meant that I carried all of my food from the start. So I, I literally had 40, 40 pounds of food in my pack and a, oh, a little pack weight of about 45 pounds when I started. Um, so any sort of running wasn't going to be in the best interest of my knees at that point. I'm not sure that walking 18 hours a day is in the best interest of your knees either, though. <laughs> <laughs> Debatable. Well, okay. So obviously you're a powerful hiker, you know, and when you started the PCT, with Justin, then what kind of pack weights did you have and what kind of distance were you shooting for? Um, well, the whole concept of the, of the PC or doing it in the wintertime is um, we, the way we sort of calendared the, the trip, there were certain places we wanted to be in certain months. So th there is a, um, a direct need to sort of keep moving the entire time. Um, so we intentionally packed as light as possible. We sort of used all of our ultralight experience from other trips and applied that to a winter setting. Um, so our packs, I think we're probably about 30 pounds to start. And when the, we had our full ski kit at its heaviest point, they were probably close to 40 pounds. Um, and we were trying to average about 20 to 25 miles a day. So in the wintertime, 20, 25 miles, I mean, if you're snowshoeing, that that would be a really good distance. If you're skiing downhill, that doesn't sound so bad. But what was your mode of travel on the snow? Um, we started um, just hiking. Um, we were able to hike about for three weeks or so before the snow got too deep. Um, and then we switched to snowshoes. And then going through the high Sierra, we switched to skis. And for the southern um, California desert, we were in, back in uh, trail runners and hiking again. Um, and the, the mode of travel was the, I think the crux or like the thing we debated for the long, longest time, because there's, it's sort of the choosing the lesser of all evils. There's no perfect mode to, to travel by, uh, cause the nature of the PCT is it, it has such huge elevation gains and losses that you're, you're entering 
um, so many different eco zones and snow. We uh, were like religiously studying the snow line of, of how many miles we're going to be in the snow each day and how many miles might drop us out of the snow line each day. So, you know, it, our hope was to ski as much as possible. Um, but just the nature of the, the trail and how much elevation gain and loss, uh, snowshoeing, I think we end up snowshoeing like 1200 miles or something like that. Wow. You know, in Colorado, we don't have the same sort of a snow line. Instead, we have snow that goes all the way down to the trailhead. You know, you're going to be in snow up here because of the elevations that we start at. But in the, the West, people talk about the snow line because, you know, you've got some nice warm weather and lower elevations. It turns into rain and then colder rain and then snow up on top. So I didn't even think about that, but that had to be a real challenge for you. Yeah, I mean, it it makes gear selection really challenging. The lowest point on the PCT is 300 feet and the highest point is uh, 13,000. So that's a huge range of snow conditions or non-existent snow conditions. So the idea of walking in your ski boots through uh, dirt trail is not appealing. Ugh, uh, no. So it was a lot of experimenting and sort of learning and, and sort of refining our systems as we went. So let's talk a little bit about your ski gear. Um, my sons and I put our standard Alpine gear, just our, our downhill gear on our backs and climbed about half a 14 or with them last summer, ditched them and, and summited because the snow was running out and then came back and skied back down. But the, the reason I bring that up is that that's not the best way to do it. We didn't really use the <laughs> lightest gear and right. I was surprised at how much weight the ski gear, the standard gear actually actually was. I mean, I, you couldn't easily carry multiple day supplies of food and, and shelter and that sort of thing. And that kind of ski gear. Yeah. And I think that's where like, um, really stripping down, um, every extraneous piece of gear and really critiquing what was going to be the essentials just to fit it in our packs. Cause I mean, at times we were carrying 10 days of food, um, so to fit that into a pack and have it be comfortable and stable enough to ski in, you know, it, it, it makes a huge difference. Um, so that, you know, that even went into our, the, the style of ski gear that we, we chose to, to use, um, a lot of ski gears, not meant for multiple day ski tours, like we were doing or multiple week or month ski tours. Right. Uh, so you're sort of picking the best of both worlds and trying to make Frankenstein, uh, a kit that would, sort of serve our, our purposes. So, um, we sort of stole a little bit from like the ski racing, ski, ski mountaineering, um, scene with really, really light boots and bindings and sort of hybrid skis that are downhill touring skis with cross country skis that have like a, a pattern, um, fish scale to them. So, um, just with the nature of a lot, a lot of rolling terrain, um, having some fish scales on some downhill skis was made a huge difference where we weren't constantly stopping to put our skins on and off. Oh, sure. I'll bet. Founded and operated in Colorado, Catabatic Gear is driven by the premise that ultralight backpacking equipment should be made lighter through innovative design and advanced materials, not by simply stripping components. With intuitive features and the best, most advanced materials, Catabatic Gear's sleeping bags, backpacks, and accessories strike the perfect balance between ultralight weights and ultimate comfort that will change the way you think about backpacking. 
If you're considering lightening the load on your next backpacking trip, check out some of their award-winning gear at katabaticgear.com. That's K-A-T-A-B-A-T-I-C gear.com. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including... Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. did a lot of snowshoeing you did a lot of just standard hiking and it sounds like you did a lot of skiing do you have any idea what distance you covered on the skis i think we ended up skiing about 450 miles snowshoeing about 1200 and then the rest was i think about six six or seven hundred miles of uh, hiking okay so you know enough to know better which one did you prefer in the end (laughs) uh when conditions are great i love skiing or hiking snowshoeing is my least favorite you know, <laughs> yeah. it's the thing we ended up doing the most and it's it's not my most efficient mode of travel so i have to imagine that when you were snowshoeing it's not like you're on packed trails like a lot of people snowshoe on you guys were breaking trail in soft snow and variable conditions had to be a lot of the time yeah i mean us looking at the weather report is just became our daily routine um looking at the elevation profile of the trail and the weather report was going to tell us how efficient or miserable the day was going to be. <laughs> um, so if a storm came in and we knew we were going to be above snow line, it just meant we were, we were breaking trail. And um, we sort of figured out a, a model of travel that in hindsight is kind of ridiculous where we realized that if one person just took a break for about 20 or 30 minutes while the other person broke trail, um, they could catch up to them in about three or four minutes of uh, walking through broken oh, trail. <laughs> that's so killer. It's kind of a more a morale breaker in some on some days, and then you know other days it's bluebird and you're walking on hard packed snow or even um, uh, snowless trails. Um, so you sort of like really um, appreciate those easier travel days. Oh yeah, well I've done quite a bit of snowshoeing, and it's still a favorite of ours. But I tell you what, I, I've done some long days on snowshoes, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours. And what I find 
is that because of the snowshoes, they sink either they don't sink straight down. They're going to lean one way or the other depending on the density of the snow under your foot. And so it's constantly throwing your ankles and your knees one way or the other, your hips. You're constantly having to compensate for the variability of the snow. It's not like just, you know, walking on hard pack or, or uh, backpacking in general. It's, it's tough. So for you guys to cover that many miles on snowshoes, man, hats off. That's, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I uh, have a natural bow to my leg now. I'm just <laughs> walking that many miles in snowshoes. Well, yeah, you have to take your steps slightly farther apart than you normally would too, because you you step on your own shoe, and that that's no fun because then you're face planting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Hey, I like that approach though. The idea that one guy breaks trail while the other one just rests, because on our trips, one guy's breaking trail and the others are taking very slow steps and standing all the time, which is exhausting too. So it kind of makes sense. Why not just take a break and then catch up and take a turn breaking the trail? Yeah, it's not like uh, we were going to lose each other. And, you know, if the train was benign enough um, where we didn't have to be together to make decisions, then, you know, it was a great way to sort of multitask while, you know, we could take a snack break while the other person's breaking trail and uh, just kind of, you know, every hour counting. And I think one thing is overlooked in the wintertime is we only had about 11 hours of daylight each day. So every every minute counted during the day. Oh, yeah. Did you end up doing quite a bit of, of continuing on the trail in the dark? Uh, very rarely, uh, we would, if depending on what the conditions were and if it felt safe enough, we might go into dusk, maybe a half hour, an hour at most. Um, but rare for most days, we would just stop right at sunset. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk about temperatures a little bit. We've already talked about how you were low enough to be out of snow for parts of the trail and high enough to be really in snow for great distances as well. What kind of temperatures were you facing? Um, well, when we finished the trip down in Southern California, we were in, um, you know, a long sleeve shirt and, uh, and shorts. So it was great to sort of walk in the spring and finish the trip that way. And, um, uh, our coldest temps, uh, there was a record breaking cold snap coming through Oregon. Um, where I think the temps got down to like minus 10, um, for this really cold storm that came through. Um, so that was sort of the range of temperatures we were looking at. And most days it was probably high 20s, uh, just below freezing, um, with overnight temps maybe in the, the teens and uh, low 20s. So I like to do winter camping, but I've never been out in the cold for extended day trips, you know, day after day after day. What's it like? <laughs> I, I think your body just, like, acclimatizes to some degree, Um you know, you'll come indoors after spending 10 days straight or a week straight, and it just feels really hot. Um, but I think the really challenging thing with winter in particular is how on it you have to be with just monitoring your temperature and adjusting your layers accordingly. Because um, moisture management is just a huge piece of not only staying comfortable and warm, but also staying safe in the winter. Um, so you're just constantly putting on things, taking off things, and you sort of have this um, menu of clothing that you can pick from and just sort of dial in whatever the, the conditions and temperatures are going to be for that day. Hmm. You know, we've done huge segments of shows on hypothermia. And so I encourage our listeners, 
if if you want to explore more about that, there are some like some mini episodes on building emergency shelters and hypothermia and that sort of thing. And then of course we visit about hypothermia with a lot of different people. But um, hypothermia is, I think, one of its trickier aspects is that when you start to get cold and your brain chills down, then you start making stupid decisions. And that can be so dangerous. Did you guys have any issues with that? Um, not directly with hypothermia. When we started in, uh, in Washington in the late fall, um, we had 30 straight days of just either rain, sleet, snow, hail. Um, the sun didn't come out for a month for us, and we were right at those perfect temperatures of just really miserable, 35 and raining or uh, really wet snow. Um, and honestly, I would much rather travel in minus 10, minus 15 degree temps because the snow is really dry. Uh, it's just much easier to sort of manage the moisture than those perfect hypothermic temperatures when it's just right above freezing and really dumping rain or something. Yeah. So the wet is the issue. That's what you're saying there. Yeah. I mean, you, you just, when you feel that deep seep, when your rain gear finally gives up the ghost, um, it's just, you can feel your morale sort of lowering with, with it. Mm. So what kind, what kind of a sleep system? I'm, I'm thinking about hiking in the rain at 35 degrees for eight, 10, 11 hours, and then trying to go to bed and be warm when I'm still out in the cold. How did you guys manage a, a warm sleep system when you're trying to be ultralight? Yeah, I mean, we knew um, being warm and dry and sane at night was going to be a priority for the trip. Um, and also, sleeping bags just take up a ton of space and can be really heavy. And one system that we modified that I, I used a lot guiding winter trips with Outward Bound was we used a, a light um, down sleeping bag and would put a synthetic overbag over top of that. Um, so two thin bags um, where any moisture coming off your body at night would um, condensate inside the synthetic bag instead of uh, on the down and compressing that down. So that system worked really well. Um, we both use either quilts over bags or, or two quilts, uh, synthetic and a down one. Um, so that just gives you a, a wide range of temperatures you can sleep in and helps just manage all the drying of gear and the moisture that's uh, accumulating in your sleeping bags at night. That's that's a good idea. So what about the pad? You had to have some insulation. Um, yeah, it's surprising how how I would say more important your sleeping pad is than your sleeping bag in the wintertime. Um, and we used a, a Neor, uh, Thermarest Neolar X-Therm. Um, so, so for under a pad, it has a huge, or under a pound, it has a, a super high R value. And I was skeptical at first that this pad would keep us warm, but on our coldest nights, it, would, it did the trick. So say that again. It's called the what? It's a Thermarest Neo Air X Therm. So Neo Air X Therm. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, let's get into more of the experience itself. It, it's amazing how you guys did this. You know, now we've covered your modality and your sleep system and the weather that you've had and all that kind of stuff, but. What was it like? I mean, I know you've done a lot of long trips. Being out in the wilderness day after day after day is something that's not new to you. But what was it like just to be there in the winter? No one else is around. Mile after mile, day after day, 
Um, I, I can't imagine what the experience was. Yeah, and I think to compare it to some some other trails or other experiences, you know, doing uh, another summertime hike or just something that's a little bit more familiar, um, there's more of an appeal of like you're going to see something new, but you sort of know that you can hike the miles, um, you can do the tr- get through the train. Uh, it's just a matter of putting in the time and effort. And this trip in particular was slightly different where I we did as much research and planning as possible, but we were still felt like we were heading into the unknown a little bit. Um, you know, there wasn't anybody that had done it before that we could ask direct questions or there's no guidebook on doing it in the winter. Um, so every day became sort of a ground truthing of what we planned or anticipated might happen. Um, so we knew some days were going to be miserable. I think you have to be upfront about that. Um, you know, there's some excitement and appeal and humility that goes into those days. And we knew that the PCT is, it's an amazing trail. It's, it's probably for Jess and I, one of our favorite trails in the world. And it's definitely gaining in popularity in the summertime. And we knew for us that, you know, we went 1700 miles uh, without seeing anybody on the trail. So just to know that we were the only ones out there and got to experience the things we saw um, just made it that much more special. Um, so it was interesting to, we both had done the trail previously in the summertime to sort of travel through these familiar places, but seeing them in a, in a totally different light and a totally different season, uh, it just made it that much more special, special where, um, there was a bit of familiarity to the trail, but also we felt like we were rediscovering it for the first time again. Um, and in terms of just like a daily routine that we sort of settled into is we would generally wake up before the sun got up, um, you know, have a cold or hot breakfast and pack up as quick as we can work as warmth in the winter time. So the sooner you get moving, the quick, uh, the quicker you're going to warm up and you sort of just get into this like meditative state of thinking about nothing and thinking about everything at the same time. And I mm. think that's, something I really love about long distance anything is just you get in this routine where just is becomes the machine and your mind can sort of drift and wander and you're sort of oscillating back and forth between needing to make really smart informed decisions and also having that creative space just like think about anything else other than the misery of the snowshoes that you're wearing right now <laughs> right <laughs> If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. 
You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. that many miles on snowshoes you either had to have some awesome snowshoes or you had to go through multiple pairs how'd they hold up for you um well we sent our snowshoes back to msr at the end and they they definitely had a laugh at them we completely wore them down and uh they said they've never seen that much wear on a single pair of snowshoes before so we might have the record for most miles on a pair of snowshoes i'm not don't I'm, that's not confirmed. <laughs> i can't imagine well how about a story about a day that things went wrong? I, I, there had to be some days that were just really, really tough. Yeah, I think probably our, our lowest point. And I think just to frame um, tough days, um, just to take a step back, like for me, I, I sort of look forward to those days where things don't go right or things go slightly askew. I just love being right on the edge of having to make decisions and if, you know, if a mistake happens, it's okay. And I think that's a, a key life lesson of sort of seeing the value in mistakes and failure and not sort of the shame and um, sort of resentment that can go around with failure. Um, but our lowest point on that trip was, uh, I mentioned earlier, there was that um, cold snap that came came in while we were traveling through Northern Oregon. And we were aware, aware that that storm was coming in um, and our, we hadn't quite switched over to our full winter kit yet. We were, our whole mentality when we started was just go, go, go. Um, we were trying to get down to the Sierra by January when it's generally more stable and tends to be a snowless January sort of model. So our whole mentality was just put the miles in, put the time in and just get as far South as possible. Um, so we knew this, this storm was going to be rolling through with lower temps and it came in earlier about three or four days earlier than we anticipated. And all, all of our winter gear was sitting at the next town. Uh, so, so we were just there, you know, in our trail runners, you know, waterproof trail runners, um, sort of just regular summertime rain gear. Um, just trying to get one more, uh, town in or, you know, a handful more miles in before we switched to our heavier, slower winter kit. And that storm came in and um, the temps dropped out. Um, and when you're in, you're traveling in trail runners uh, or, you know, hiking boots at that point, um, you know, they're going to freeze at night. And um, just getting up and, and traveling and we were post holing through about three feet of snow at that point. Um, and the, the coldest morning we got up and, you know, I, we put our, our feet into frozen shoes and, you know, I told myself that morning that, okay, I'm going to stop in half hour if my feet aren't warm. And it's really hard to tell the difference between your feet being numb and your feet, uh, being frozen. Oh, or yeah. being, um, so got to our half mile or half hour window wiggle my toes things felt great continued on 
and we generally stop about every three hours to take a quick snack break. And when we got to that break, as soon as I took my shoe off, you know, I knew I had some, some, uh, either frost nip or frostbite. And when it's at that early stage, it's really hard to tell how extensive the damage is. And, uh, Justin also had some, some white spots on his feet as well. Um, so you're, you're miles from anywhere and you still, you're still post tolling every mile that you're, you're going to need to sort of evacuate yourself out of there. Um, you're going to be post tolling through the same condition. So you're sort of weighing in your mind of for frostbite, you, you don't want it to refreeze. So if you commit to re rewarming it in the field, you have to guarantee that you can't refreeze it. Um, so we were at sort of that, that crossroads of well, how are we going to manage this situation and what, how are we going to move forward? And we decided to field rewarm and, and then just try and exit out to the nearest trailhead or, you know, emergency sort of um, road access that we could get to. So we spent a whole another day uh, traveling about 25 miles to get to the nearest road the next day uh, with sort of this underlying um, doubt or worry of like how, how much damage did we do to our feet? Um, so once we got out of town, you know, we had that, that hard conversation of, you know, what does this mean for the trip? Do we need to call it? And, um, luckily, you know, we were the, it was sort of superficial frostbite. Um, but we had, you know, that daily reminder every day, the rest of the trip of when we put our shoes on, it's like another reminder, like, don't mess up. You got your one free, get out of jail free card. Um, so it just sort of, you know, brought the severity of the trip in into a clearer picture. You know, it's such a tough thing to make the right call in those situations. Um, I've not been in anything that, I would say, that far or that deep in the wilderness where it took, you know, more than a day to get out. But I've had a few situations where I had to decide, is it time to to try to stop and build a shelter and, and spend a night that wasn't unplanned for or to keep moving? And it's such a tough call. And sometimes if you keep moving, you, you do yourself a lot of harm. And if you stop, you don't know what you're going to get into during the night either. So, man, that would be scary to me. Is that part of the experience there? Absolutely. And I think for Justin and I, we've hiked a lot of other trails together. A lot of those trails that you uh, mentioned prior, um, we've done together. And a lot of those trips were a lot of decision-making. So for at this point, we know each other really well. We know when to push each other and when to sort of let the other one vent. And when the really probe on the agenda that one person might have or decision they're leaning towards. Um, Cause like you're saying in those moments, you are having this open conversation, hopefully of what are our options? What are the consequences? And, you know, what is, what's the best way to move forward? Um, so for me, those moments are, are really exciting to sort of engage your brain in that way. Um, where you're just doing a, a lot of fact checking and fact gathering and just trying to make the most informed decision that you can. Yeah. I, I can't imagine, you know, I talked to uh, a couple of guys and they decided at the beginning of their journey that if, if they disagreed on something rather than arguing about it, they would flip a coin <laughs> and it worked for them. But that kind of scares me a little bit. I like consensus a lot, but man, what yeah. happens when you lock horns and you just can't, agree did you guys have a moment like that 
nothing where we were like butting heads to that extent, but I think we both are in agreement that if we are at that point, we're going to choose the more conservative um, method. I remember when we were traveling through the high Sierra, once we started getting some more consequential, like avalanche train, the the debate came up of whether we were going to carry one sat phone or two sat phones, meaning if I get buried or you get buried, do we still have a means to call out? And that was, that was probably the most heated debate we had um, on the whole trip. You know, I was going to ask about avalanche danger. Maybe we can come back to that in a moment, but how did that end? Two phones or one? Um, we decided for, for one. And so, I think we also, so we had one phone or a, a cell phone with a DeLorem and also a sat phone. So in, in essence, we still had two ways to communicate. Okay. So you did have so a, a fallback. Yeah. That was sort of our, our, the compromise. You found the middle of the road there. Sure. Did you guys take a spot tracker or anything like that with you so that you could signal for help? Um, we just carried a sat phone uh, with us for most of the trip. Okay. A satellite phone, sorry. Yep, I understand. Um, avalanche danger. Uh, we've done a lot of shows on that as well, but it had to be a, a major concern for this trip. Um, what kind of precautions did you take, and how did you manage to, to not get buried out there? Uh, well, that's where I feel like we leaned on Justin as 10 plus years of ski patroller experience under his belt. So he by far is the sort of expert in avalanche terrain. Uh, I have some background, but not to the extent of, of his. And luckily for us, well, lucky I say in some ways, um, the, the winter of 2014-15 was just below average. You know, California and the whole Western or mostly California has this trip fell within that five year drought period. And, um, so that was, that went into our planning process where we knew we wanted to hit, we wanted to get out of Washington before the snow got too deep. Um, Washington's really steep and the trail sort of blasted into a lot of spots. So that's why we started in the late fall and just wanted to get in as many miles as possible. And then we were trying to time it where we're going to go through the high Sierra where in traditionally there's been uh, a dry, drier January pattern that sets up in the high Sierra. So if we could get to there, that was just going to give us a weather window. Um, but thankfully for most of the trail, there was very few avalanche risks because of the lower than average uh, snowpack. Um, and that in itself sort of presented a whole series of other challenges. Um, you know, if you're having high avalanche train or, um, conditions, you're going to have to hunker down in your tent and make more informed route, route choices. Um, but when there's just like sparse snow to travel through, it almost opens up more objective hazards where, you know, things are just barely buried. You know, if there's a down tree or, um, rocks that are just barely covered in snow. Um, so your, your mode of skiing becomes almost more hazardous in some ways. Um, when you're not facing those avalanche concerns. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So I have to ask, you said that you did several other trips with Justin, but I have found that meeting someone and I guess someone that you can really rely on, someone that you would invite, it's really tough to find someone that you can really rely on and that you would entertain the idea of going on an epic adventure like this with. So 
how did you and Justin uh, meet and, and get to know each other and decide that you guys could rely on each other? I mean, really, you're relying on each other for your lives in this scenario. Yeah, and I, I think for us, you know, if, to take on a trip of this nature, having not had that prior relationship and both having not sort of the extent of experience that we had, you know, I, I would say first and foremost, this trip would have been a complete failure. Um, but there's sort of a, a progression in that relationship where, you know, we first met actually on the PCT in 2004. We were both hiking it that summer uh, and sort of just kept in contact, you know, when you're sort of in the migration of finding new trails to do, there's a small network of people to reach out to if you're interested in doing something new or, um, and we both, um, sort of heard about this trail that was being developed down in New Zealand, the Tearoa. Um, and, um, after staying in contact for a couple of years, we were, I was heading down there for personal travel and was like, Hey, I'm heading down there for this. Do you want to maybe consider doing this trail together? And so that was, you know, a, a very undefined trail at that point. And there's a lot of route finding and developing our own route. So, um, you know, not, not any huge consequence other than getting very lost or misplaced. Um, so, you know, we sort of had that innate progression of sort of smaller consequences, but venturing out and branching out on, the skill sets we were developing in tandem with one another. So it just sounds like it took time, took time together to earn each other's trust and, and uh, build the skill in that friendship to make something like this possible. Yeah. It's just, you know, time and miles together. Um, you know, after the TRO trial in New Zealand, we went over to Nepal and um, heard about this yet another upcoming trail, the great Himalaya trail. And, that was yet another trail where undefined, um, high elevation, a lot of unknowns. So we were just sort of upping the ante each time and getting to know each other a little bit more. So I've got to ask, you know, there are lots of challenges when you take on some venture like this. And I mean, this is a big one. You guys, as far as anybody knows, you guys are the only ones who've ever done this. This is a big one. Um, why? Why do it? What's what's the point of uh, coming up with an adventure like this and going for it? Well, I think for Justin and I, that's really the why is sort of what defines a lot of these trips. And we really have a deep passion for just seeing new terrain, new environments. Um, you know, it's amazing how slowly things unfold when you're walking or at a walking pace. So you really get to immerse yourself in the topography and the environment or culture that you're walking through. And so every turn becomes an unknown and, you know, a surprise or a new challenge. Um, so I think it's sort of the appeal of seeing something new. And I think as of late, it's also the, the idea of doing something new. So a new, a new mode of travel, trying to branch out from just straight, strictly backpacking or hiking. Um, so ski touring was really uh, a high appeal for us. We both love the, the PCT and sort of the combination of this question of could it be done and exploring that um, really narrowed it down to um, making it a priority, at least a priority to give it a shot. Well, I think it's an amazing feat that you accomplished, but, you know, I have to, 
I have to almost say I'm I'm just as impressed that you've done all this other stuff and that over the years you've consistently gone back and, and found a way to work such adventures into your life. I think that there are a lot of people that are kind of envious right now because there's so many people that love being out in the woods. They love backpacking. They love through hiking. But finding the time to pull it off, I mean, that's got to be tough for so many people. Um, any advice for people who are, are kind of wrestling with that right now? Um, if you can eliminate as many expenses as possible, it really frees up what you, what you can experience in your life. So if you just look at how many monthly payments you have to going to something, whether it's a school loan, a car payment, a phone bill, rent, um, you know, Netflix, all these monthly expenses, like, do you need that or do you want that? And I think when you like really prioritize what you truly need, um, I think that's why sort of migrating the ultralight ethos into a, your daily life um, just innately opens up more possibilities. You know, if you're just using what you need, um, it's amazing how far your dollar will stretch. So would you call yourself a minimalist then? I've cheap bastard has been. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So, you guys have a book coming out now about ultralight winter travel. What, what's the name of this book, and, and how can people find it? Um, well, we kept it simple. It's uh, ultralight winter travel, <laughs> and uh, Falcon Guides is going to be putting it out probably um, this coming fall. Well, you must have learned a lot about it, and one of the things that I've noted about my winter trips is that everything's heavy. You know, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm a little bit too chicken to leave some stuff at home uh, in the wintertime. You know, the consequences can be high. But uh, learning how to travel light in the wintertime, I think is that's a whole different ballgame. That's not the same thing as a summer trip. Yeah, and, and you know, that was our hope with the, the nature of the book was um, – you know, the, Justin's written books about summer ultralight travel, and for both of us, it's just the the more we can encourage and and create avenues for people to get outside and, and enjoy uh, the outdoors. You know, it. I feel like you protect what you know, and what's precious to you is what you know. And if people can ex- experience the outdoors, they're gonna innately want to pr- protect those things. Um, so I feel like there's this barrier or mystique around winter travel. It has a lot of um, worry, and I think for good reason. And I, our hope with the book is that it provides a, a simple progression that people can ex- explore and experience and make simple mistakes and sort of learn learn from them and move forward. Well, it sounds like a great book, and I'm really interested in skimming through it or reading it in depth, you know, when it does come out, because like I said, that it seems like my winter trips are just far too heavy, which doesn't help when you're on snowshoes or skis. <laughs> that just makes it all the worse. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, the lighter your pack can be, the more, the more your head can look up and look around. Yeah, no doubt. So you also have a great website, um, Sean That's S H A W N F. O R R Y, and uh, man, you've got you've got information about all these trips, so that everyone can can go and see, um, and get get a lot more information about it. So, for instance, 
I'm hesitating here just looking at it, but beautiful pictures of your trips. Um, what can you tell us about this website? It looks like you put a lot of energy into it. Um, yeah, I think my, the, the biggest hope I have with, you know, creating some sort of platform or website is to pass along information. Uh, so there is like a planning section on a lot of the trails that Justin and I have either um, helped pioneer or were one of the first to do. Um, there was a lot of, not a lot of information out when we were planning those trips. So, you know, for us wanting to pay forward to the hiking community of getting the information out there, so that way people can get out there and experience these trips themselves. Um, so that's sort of the end, the end goal for me with a website is just creating a, a platform or a venue where people can get in touch and discuss and share information. Right. So I had to note on your website, this is maybe a little off subject, but it's dear to my heart, celiac disease. Um, I have found it to be tough because I'm gluten intolerant. I found it to be tough to uh, manage backpacking food because of that. Can you share more about that? Yeah, I've probably, uh, I've had celiacs probably 10 plus years, probably longer. I actually thought I just had Giardia for a decade until I found out I had Celiac. <laughs> I've been celiac. there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, it, it sort of changes your whole approach to meals. And at first it feels really daunting of like, what am I going to eat? You know, how can I substitute all these things? Um, and over time you sort of figure out different menus or different meals and, um, and I think even now in the outdoor um, food scene, there's more gluten-free options and it just gets better and better. I mean, you can get gluten-free big bars now or uh, gluten-free pizza in town. So um, it, it feels like it's getting easier and easier to sort of um, get back on the end of the spectrum of things you used to eat. There's some sort of substitute now. Right. Well, let's just briefly talk about food. Uh, did you guys use just dehydrated food on this trip, or do you have another strategy for how to eat? Um, yeah, I, I feel like we use just normal, well, we generally use um, just normal backpacking food. Um, honestly, whatever tastes good, I think, is the more important thing at the time. Um, but for the winter trip in particular, we, the one tweak that we did make to our food scene was um, any food we were going to eat during the day, so on the go, um, had to be zero prep. So it was a lot of like, um, energy bars and, uh, string cheese and, um, meat sticks and anything you could just open and put in your mouth, um, was going to be the most efficient way to sort of get the calories in without getting too cold. Right. So you can eat while you move and stay warm. Yeah. And then, you know, the winter opens up other possibilities of just carrying butter or, anything from the freezer aisle. Um, so we, a hot meal at the end of the day was a huge morale boost for us. And, um, even hot drinks. Um, usually I don't carry any sort of like tea or, um, hot cocoa or whatever during the summer, but in the winter time, it's such a nice way to sort of rehydrate at the end of the day and, um, get some more calories in. Mm, yeah. You know, I think that I've been struggling with backpacking food for probably 20 years, and I keep refining it and learning more and more. I'll bet you are an expert just because you've spent so much time doing it. But I think the more of it that you do, the more you learn, and, and the more sorts of little tricks you find, 
that really work for you. So I guess it has a lot to do with individual taste, doesn't it? Yeah, and at some point, I, I hear you, you just get burned out with traditional food, and sometimes you just got to carry the glass jar of maple syrup. It's, good. it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. You'll appreciate it. Well, I think that's kind of where I landed was I'm just going to carry a little bit more weight so that I can have the foods that I love while I'm out there. Well, that's awesome. Exactly. Well, what kind of uh, ending story do you have? Is something to make us laugh or inspire us? There have to be some amazing stories from this trip. Uh, let's see here. Um, well, I think the I think the the big motivator for us um, during the the trip was, like we mentioned earlier, that you know almost the entirety of the trip we didn't see anyone else out there. And I think what showcases sort of how tight knit um, the the hiking community is is as we got further and further south, there sort of became this momentum building in the the outdoor community. And um, you know, we were getting a lot of supportive emails or just Facebook messages, just people encouraging us, um, and that just meant a lot when we got into a town and sort of regrouped. Just you know, if you had a really tough experience or previous miles just to get in and have that sort of psychological boost uh, was really, really key. And I think even more so along the the PCT, there's this network of uh, trail angels or these people that will, out of the kindness of their heart, take you in or provide a meal or transport you to a trailhead. Um, and during the summertime, they're, they're so overrun with so many other hikers and it sort of just becomes... Um, a business to some degree uh, we're in the winter, you know, we're the only people there. So you got to have these more intimate conversations and get to know these, these people um, more on one-on-one level. And I think that meant a lot to both of us that uh, it just felt really special that we got to have that one-on-one time with um, just these incredible uh, network of people along the trail that are, are out of the kindness of the heart will take you in. I mean, um, there's these trail angels called the softlies down in Southern California. And, um, they probably take in, you know, 2000 hikers every year, two mm. or 3000 hikers. So they all come through and use their toilet. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's the level of like gratitude and appreciation that, um, we have for those people. And they, they meant a lot for us along the way and, um, just provide an unmeasurable amount of, of mental support. Isn't it wonderful when you uh, get out and you meet people and you find out how wonderful people can be? It just kind of redeems your whole opinion of the human race, you know? Yeah, and I would say uh, your typical long-distance hiker uh, looks very close to a homeless person. So, you know, there's a lot of bias and judgment and preconceived notions of what this person is that's trying to hitch a ride somewhere or trying to shop through the grocery store. And I think people can see through that and and uh, see see the greater thing that's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today, man. It was it was a real pleasure to make your acquaintance, and I hope that we can have you on the show again and we can talk about some of these other big adventures. So, just before we go, I have to know what are you planning for next? That's the the million dollar question, right? Yep. Um, there's always something on, on the, the tick list. And, uh, I think as of now, uh, just a short trip probably for this winter, Justin and I are planning on just doing a, 
a quick lap ski tour lap around the uh, Tahoe Rim Trail this winter. So about 250 mile ski tour around the Lake Tahoe. Oh, just a little stroll in the park for you then. Just another, just quick jaunt stretch away. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, congratulations to you and to Justin. You know, it was, it's an amazing feat what you did, but I think that what's wonderful about it is that you are bringing back the memories and sharing the stories and the know-how and, and kind of forging new ground for others who who are going to look to this for years to come. So thanks a lot, man. Yeah, my pleasure, Kurt. Appreciate it. You bet. And for all the listeners out there, wow, amazing, huh? Don't forget, it doesn't matter what the season is. It doesn't matter how hard it might be. There's always a way to get out there and have some fun. Hey, check out Gary Collins' new book, Going Off the Grid, the how-to book of simple living and happiness. Now available in Amazon and Kindle format at primalpowermethod.com. Music.